So um, a number of you commented on Job and how that was kind of um, some new territory for you. Um, it, it's always interesting when you when you kind of just take enough time to just kind of reach down and study it. And the whole idea of, um, of how God... Oh, thank you. Can I just take one of those and give you the rest? Um, how God... Um, moves from the the Holy Spirit moves from the east to the west. So let me give you let me give you a New Testament. The Apostle Paul. He has a Macedonian call. If you look at that passage in Acts, what he's doing is he's going to go east with the gospel. So instead of going into Europe with the gospel, what's he going to do? He's going to go east and he's going to go into what we would know as Asia. But God says no. You can't go that way. I don't want the gospel to go that way. I want the gospel to go west instead of going east. So two reasons. Number one, again, it shows that the Holy Spirit is moving for some reason. He moves from east to west. It also shows that God's intended plan for the evangelism of the world was to go Europe and then move Europe into America. So God made a very, very strategic decision about Paul because here's the greatest apostle. Here's a guy who, you know, who, who begins the whole mission movement, really, and, and he goes west. He goes into Europe, and that's why the gospel started there and kept moving. Now, another interesting thing is uh, after World War II, Douglas MacArthur, if you've ever studied Douglas MacArthur, General MacArthur, intriguing guy. If you want to do something really fun, um, go on YouTube and get his old soldier's speech at West Point after he, after he retired out of the Army. You've got to hear it. You've got to watch it. You've got to listen to it. It's amazing, amazing. He was solid Christian, um, really understood the book of Revelation very, very well. But when MacArthur got in Japan, here's what he said. He called on all the mission agencies in America to send missionaries to Japan. He said they are so open to the gospel right now. He said, I need as many missionaries as you can possibly get. And mission agency after mission agency turned him down because they were such, they were so um, bothered by the whole, you know, war and, and the fact that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor that they, we did not send missionaries in. The hearts closed up in Japan and, and you still have a difficult time getting the gospel there. But so when windows of opportunity open, we have to be ready to seize them. Always be ready to seize those opportunities because they doors open and close. They, they open and close, don't they? In fact, in the book of Revelation, there's two times the doors open. There's one time it opens in chapter 4. It says the, hev- the door of heaven opens, and in chapter 19, the door of heaven opens again. Chapter 4, the door opens, and Paul or John the Apostle is taken up. He's a picture of the raptured saint. And then he's viewing as raptured saints the tribulation from heaven downward. It opens a second time when the armies of heaven come, Revelation chapter 19, and they return, heaven opens again, and they come back down to earth in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So doors are always significant in Scripture. So whenever you see something that kind of piques your attention, I wonder why that's going on. You always kind of go back, you begin to kind of dig down into it and just kind of study it. For example, the first time a door is mentioned in Scripture is in the book of Genesis. Now, in biblical interpretation, this is not part of what we're doing. This is just extra gravy, okay? But in biblical interpretation, there's one of the rules that's really important. It's called the rule of first mention. The first time a word is used in Scripture, it sets the tone for the way it's used the rest of the way through Scripture. 
unless you're using uh, one of the newer translations like an NIV, it will not work for that because it's not a good translation. Okay. But so what happens is, so here's this door. And so there's, there's this guy named Cain and Abel, right? Remember that guy? Um, I remember one time watching Archie Bunker. Remember Archie Bunker? What was that? What was that show called? What was it? All, right, right. I mean, you learn great stuff there, right? Um, but Archie was talking about one. He was talking to his son-in-law, which he affectionately called Meathead. Everybody remembers that, okay? Affectionately called Meathead, and he says, "Yeah, Meathead." He says, "You know, it says in the Bible, you know, that that uh, Cable, uh, that that Abel uh, killed his brother with a cane." You know, once you get that in your head, it's hard to get it out of your head. You know, you just think, what happened? Who did what? Right? Okay, so in the story in Genesis, now back to reality here. I'm glad my humor's improving. So um, back to the book of Genesis now. So all of a sudden, um, Cain brought an acceptable offering unto the Lord. And he said, it says in the King James, okay, New King James, it says he brought an offering of, his, uh, an offering of a lamb, a lamb. So he had a picture of Christ, right? The Lamb of God. It was sacrificed and it was acceptable to God. Cain comes, he doesn't sacrifice a lamb. What he does is he brings produce. But remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God comes to him and he says to, to, uh, to Cain, he says, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you make a proper sacrifice, won't I accept you? So a little bit later, um, it says, uh, why is your countenance falling? And, it's, and then God says, sin is lying at the door, and his desire is for you, but you must master him. So who's at the door? Satan's at the door. Now what are you going to do? And, and his response was, you know, where's your brother Cain? And he said, what? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible to protect him? Why did he use the word keep? Well, because back in Genesis chapter 3, God said to Adam, I want you to keep the garden. And the word keep in the Hebrew means to, to plant a hedge of thorns about it, to protect it, to keep somebody out. And Adam failed to protect or to keep Satan out of the garden. So when uh, Cain makes reference to it, he's saying, are you holding me accountable for Satan? Satan must have killed my brother Abel. Now see how the word keep is significant? So what happens? What do they do? They take, uh, they take uh, you know, Adam and Eve and they throw them out of the garden, right? Okay, and they throw them out of the garden, and they place an, uh, an angel at the gate of Eden. And it says, with a flaming sword to keep them out, lest they eat from the tree of life now after they've sinned and are eternally damned. See how the word keep works? So whenever you have words like just a simple word like sword, so now you fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 16, and you've got a guy named Solomon, and he asked for what? He just asked for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom and a bankroll. Remain the richest man on earth.
So he make and all of a sudden two women come in and they they have one baby and they both are claiming the baby's theirs, right? They said, "Hey, that's my baby." You know, all babies look like Winston Churchill, so who knows, right? Okay, and so um, Solomon, he's wise. He's listening to all this thing, and and uh, Solomon says, "You know, bring me a sword. We're just going to cut the baby in half, give each mom a half. All will be well." Which means that you don't want him working in your preschool. So we're going to cut the baby in half, give each mom a half. And the one mother says, sound like a good solution. The other mother says, no, don't kill my baby, give it to her. Solomon immediately knows what? Because here's the principle. Remember the sword back there in Genesis? Okay. Truth is revealed under the edge of the sword. Now you come over here to 1 Kings 3. Truth is revealed under the edge of the sword. Now we go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any what? Two-edged sword, discerning the true intentions of the heart. Revelation chapter 9 verse 11, when he comes, he will carry with him. Out of his mouth will come a sharp two-edged sword. See how that works? So you can pick any word you want. I mean, you can just take and pick up on what I've given you right now and take sword, take door, whatever, and you trace those through, and God will give you insight into some great stuff that you probably didn't see before. You know, just like when you look at, when you look at Job and you say he was the right, most righteous man in the land of the East, but remember, the first question should be, well, who was the most righteous man in the West? It was Abraham. They lived at the same time. They probably talked. See, when you live to be like four or 500 years old, you know a lot of people. That's the basic rule, right? All right. Um, hey, we have, um, we have a sheet that we're going to hand out to you. And what I'd really like you to do is, is take these are core values, and I'd like you just to uh, take a minute before you leave tonight and just circle which one of the top um, core values uh, the top five core values on there that you think are really important for our church, okay, really important for this ministry. I want to give you the first one, Just and, and this is just all, everything is just extra before we get into Johnson's book here. But here's the first one. We owe the world an encounter with God. Therefore, we are relentless in the pursuit of his presence and power, both inside and outside the church walls. So here's the, here's the core value. We owe the world an encounter with God. I want you to think about that. We owe the world an encounter with God. How many people did Jesus heal inside the church? How many did he heal inside the synagogue? Where did they all get healed? Why was it so important for him to do that outside of the walls of that institution? Because it was to find the power. To, when, when people experienced the power of God, they instantly converted to Christ. They said, whoa, I've never seen a man do anything like this. I've never seen a man speak like this. If all of our speak and all of our healing and all that other stuff only happens within the walls of this place, we've, we've created a country club. We don't want country club living. We want to be on the streets with ministry to people, and, and we want to touch lives. So um, I'm... Uh, I'm, in, I'm studying, working on some stuff, and my phone rings, and it's Randy Adams. And I do what, you know, you, I know you find it hard to believe that I do, but I said, you know, remind me. I'll call you back later. I push a little button. Remind me. And then he, about another 30 minutes later, he calls me again. I think, are you kidding me? And I, I hit him again. Remind me again. Third time, I'm aggravated. 
Seriously, right? So here's the, here's the basically the rule too. If you're if you're really in bad shape, it takes three phone calls for me to answer. Okay, so so I answer the phone. What's going on, Randy? Oh man, I just got to tell you what happened. I'm thinking, you calling me to give me a news update? Are you serious? Just tell you what's happening. Well, what's going on, Randy? He said, Well, I'm down in Fullerton getting new tires on my truck. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. What else? What else is going on? He says, well, they were really delayed on getting my tires on my truck, and I'm sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? What's going on? And, I, you know, and, and this story is starting to unwind, and I'm going, okay, this has got to get better than this, right? So he's sitting down, and I'm, I'm waiting there, and I'm looking over, and these guys are not even moving. They're lazy and all of this, and, and all this stuff's going on. And then this guy comes walking around the corner, and he's a, he's a pretty old guy. He turned out to be like 92 or 93 years old. And he's all grumpy. He's mad, too, because they're taking so long. So Randy, you know, he's being the good conversationalist. He uh, he says, "Hey, let's just sit down here on this bench and tell me about you. Tell me about yourself." Well, you know, I retired from the petroleum company, and what else? Did, what'd you do before that? Well, I was in the uh, was in the navy, and I was on a uh, on an aircraft carrier in World War II. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Now you married? Well, my wife died a few years ago, and yeah, okay, and and uh, well, what else? What do you what do you how how are you with Jesus? And he goes, well, you know, um, you know, probably not real good. You know, I used to go to church a little bit when, you know, earlier, but, you know, I don't do that anymore. And <clears throat> anyway, long story short, Randy says, uh, start telling him about what it means to be saved and to know Jesus. And so now imagine this scene. The scene is he's sitting on a bench in front of a tire store in Fullerton. Randy's got his arms around, his, his arm over his shoulder, and they're praying while this guy is praying the sinner's prayer, receiving Christ. He gets done. He's weeping like a baby. He says, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't, I don't know why I feel like I do. I just, something's happened to me. And he says, well, you know, you've just come into the kingdom of God and Jesus has filled your heart. And that was what I delayed three times. But what he did was that first value. We owe the world an encounter with God. We owe the world an encounter with God. Before um, we got ready to, uh, to do the Bible club today, I, I, thought, I thought of that thought. You know, and it was so cool to see all the volunteers there say, hey, let's just pray. We owe the world an encounter with God. You know why I think in part why, why I'm so excited about you being here is because every step we take to get closer to know more about how we can do that is the opportunity we have to influence more people for Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's go to the Johnson book. Let's go to, uh, if you will, let's go to, to page 122. I thought this was pretty insightful on his part. Uh, and this is the, uh, the idea of, of the pearl. So page 122 says, Why do we have to endure uncertainty? This is the second new paragraph. That is a mystery, but the Bible hints at an answer when he gives us a spiritual picture of a city called the community of the redeemed or Zion. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. In Revelation, we see a gate called praise, and we discover that it is made out of a solid pearl. Think for a moment how a pearl is formed through irritation and conflict. A granular of sand is inside the oyster shell, and a pearl forms around the granular to keep it from doing harm. The Bible pairing praise with irritation is not coincidental. When we are stuck in conflict and uncertainty, and yet we praise him without manipulation, it is a sacrifice 
It means that we are reacting in a way that produces something beautiful. In a moment, a gate is formed, a place of entrance where the king of glory can invade our situation. Isn't that great? I mean, how many times do we waste our sorrows? Instead of thinking and allowing it to form a pearl. Many people have no gate because they won't praise him in the middle of apparent paradox. They get stuck wondering, how can God promise to heal all my diseases, but I've got this problem in my body? How can God promise to provide, and yet I've been without a job for three months? And yet Psalm 87 says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwellings of Jacob. The gate, that place of praise in the midst of conflict, is where his presence rests, where the king himself dwells. The gate is formed when we move above uh, human explanation and into a place of trust. People tend to respond in one of two ways when an answer they seek doesn't come, okay? And one is accusing God. God, you've failed. You've done something wrong. You must have made a mistake. Why is this happening to me? I venture to say everybody in this room has said that, okay? At least you've thought it if you haven't really said it. You've had that, you know, and it's okay to question, you know, ask God questions, But you don't want to let it slip into accusation against what God is not doing, what God's not up to. So um, let's think about, let's go to page um, 124 if we can. And let's talk about this idea. God is good all the time. It's right in the middle of of the page there. You may have underlined that. God is good all the time. But do we live like that? So when, uh, when the idea of the goodness of God first appeared, it was in the book of Genesis. By the way, can I tell you this? The first 15 chapters of the book of Genesis are the most important 15 chapters in the Bible in one sense. Every, now listen to this, this is really important. Every major doctrine in the Bible is introduced in the first 15 chapters. Every major doctrine is introduced in the first 15 chapters of the book of Genesis. If you get off in the first 15 chapters, you are off through the whole Bible. Example, doctrine of the rapture of the saints. That is that we're going to be lifted up into the air and meet Jesus in the air, right? Okay, Genesis chapter 5. It says Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. Enoch never died. Hmm, That's pretty interesting. How about the Antichrist? Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10. Okay, he formed the Tower of Babel. And Babel became the first human kingdom. It's the last human kingdom on the earth. uh, Revelation chapter 17, that says Babylon, the great whore. Okay, so it runs all the way through scripture. How about creation? How about the doctrine of man, the doctrine of woman? How about the doctrine of marriage? How about the doctrine of children? They're all in there. The doctrine of sin, it's in there. The doctrine of salvation, Cain and Abel, we talked about that already. The doctrine of Israel. Every major doctrine is introduced in the book of Genesis. You can read the first 15 chapters of Genesis and forget the rest of it and do pretty well. But if you get off in those first 15 chapters, you're going to not do well. So someone comes in and they say, well, I don't believe God created the heavens and the earth. And you're off through the entire Bible because all of a sudden you've got Jesus believing it and now you've got a problem because you're still trying to get guys coming from monkeys. You know, because you why? Because you got the first you got the first chapter wrong. 
How about the doctrine of Satan? Where did he come from? Well, it's right there. He shows up in chapter 3, but really he's introduced in chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 45 says, when he created it, he did not create it void and without form. Did you hear that? He created the heavens and the earth, but he did not create them with void and without form. But you go to verse 2, and what does it say? And the earth was void and without form, and darkness was on the face of the deep. In between chapter, in chapter 1 of verses 1 and 2 is where the fall of Satan came. Because then it says, let, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That was not the sun, the moon, or the stars. That didn't happen until the fourth day, verse 14. So what was the darkness? The darkness was the fall of Satan. That's why he shows up in chapter 3, and you go, where did the dude come from? He came from chapter 1. He predated, his fall predated chapter 1, or chapter 3. Pretty interesting, huh? So what does God do? Darkness comes in. It brings devastation on the face of the earth. And that's why God recreates the earth because it says, God says to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. You only replenish something that's already been plenished. Hmm, that'll give you something to think about. Okay, well, let's move on. Accusing God. So what happens in, uh, in Genesis? So Satan comes to Adam and says, um, you know, God's really not good. God told you you couldn't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he knows the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Would you like to be God? Is what really the temptation. It wasn't a temptation to destroy your life. Imagine, that, imagine if it had gone like this. Hey, um, Adam and Eve, here's, uh, here's, here's a really great temptation. What I want you to do is if you'll take from that tree, you'll become a drug addict. You'll rob, steal. Um, you'll be unfaithful. You'll, finally, you'll, just, you'll probably die in a gutter. How's that sound? Did you notice it came to Eve? He came to Eve, and Adam was there. He just wasn't saying anything. Basic principle of Scripture is this. Women are easily deceived and men are dumb. I mean, guys don't deny it. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> My wife says, what are you thinking about, nothing? No, you can't be thinking about No, I don't think about nothing. I can sit here and think about nothing all day long. Doesn't bother me a bit. you got to be thinking, no, I'm not thinking. No, dumb, okay? Paul says to Timothy, you know, uh, Eve was deceived. She was deceived. Why? Because when Satan showed up, he didn't show up as some, you know, ugly snake going, hey, look at me, baby, don't I look good? He's called the bright shining one. He became probably, he, when, when angels appear in Scripture, they always appear as men. They never appear as women. There are no women angels. They don't have wings either. Kind of blows up Christmas, but, you know. <laughs> Got a bunch of, you know, angels floating around the, the you know, the manger. That always appears man. So what does it do? Satan shows up as the most brilliant, shining, great. I mean, she only had one guy to compare it to. Adam, I'm looking at Adam, I'm looking at this guy over here. This guy looks better. This guy promises a future that Adam couldn't promise. You want to be God? I got what you need. Adam, he's sitting there going, yeah, I never thought about it. Yeah, give me that apple. Dumb. She was deceived. 
tapped right into the weakness. Adam just fell right into dumbness, and the rest is history. And, you know, later, you know, when uh, all the children of Adam and Eve were outside the garden looking in, I think Cain said to Abel, said, you know, we ought to go live over there. So we used to before mom got us eat out of house and home. Come on, give me a little bit more than that. I need a little bit more than that. I need some encouragement or I'll tell more. So, so what is it that people, have you ever noticed how people who don't believe in God, what's the, what's the big obstacle they have? If God is such a good God, why does he allow bad things, suffering, difficulty? It's exactly, see, it's exactly what happened back there. Instead, why don't they ask this? If God is a bad good, why does he allow good? If God is a bad God, why does he allow good in the world? Because they say, if God is a bad God, why does he, why does he allow suffering? The real question is, if he's such a bad God as you think he is, why does he allow any goodness to happen on planet Earth then? Do you see the way that you form the question changes the whole perspective on, on the answer? When you learn how to take, you know, understand Scripture and say, okay, what's the real issue going on here? It is this idea of goodness. God is not good, okay? That's what man is most, that's going to be the number one dominant thing that people are going to have a problem with. God is not good. And so what happens is when we understand this, and this, this whole thing on, in uh, verse, uh, or in page 124, it says that God is good all the time. If you don't believe that, then every time you have a setback, what happens? You, you have a setback. I mean, it, you, have a, you have a trial, and you get a setback spiritually, and you go, well, I don't know how God do this to me. Because you question the character of God. Have you ever noticed when the disciples, when healings were going on, and uh, the disciples were just confused by this whole thing? They said, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Jesus never answered that question. He said, neither, but for the glory of God. Oh, what about those guys over there, those Galileans that that tower fell over and it killed them? And then Pilate, you know, he, he, he got some of those guys and he sprinkled their blood. I mean, it's just like he was killing people and stuff like that. What about all that? Oh, no, and Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He goes, well, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. How about the rich young ruler? Mark chapter 10. Rich young ruler comes to him and says, uh, oh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, all the commandments I've kept from my, from my, my child up. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Are you saying I'm God? Are you recognizing who I am? He saw the commandments I've kept from my youth up. Well, he broke one. He broke the lying one. You ever notice how by the time you didn't understand the Ten Commandments, you've already broke some of them? It's too late. It's kind of like by the time your children are grown and gone, then you know how to be a parent. You ever figured that one out? Yeah. Once you're unemployed, you know you got it all figured out. So, so the idea is we have to understand this. God is good even if I don't understand his ways. 
even if I don't like his ways, even if it's painful and it's confusing, because if I take the other approach, what good does it do me anyway? God is not good. God doesn't like me. You see, it sends you in the wrong direction. Okay, so um, let's go over to... um, Go to page um, 126. Top of that, first new paragraph, Jesus said something completely different. This kind come out by only by prayer and fasting. Jesus uh, n- uh, neither prayed nor fasted in that particular moment when he healed the demonized boy, but he had a power vault filled with time he'd spent with the Father so that heaven could erupt into the natural world at a moment's notice. Isn't that good? Storing up, storing up prayers in heaven. See, when you begin to operate out of the overflow versus operating out of the want, then the miraculous becomes ordinary instead of extraordinary. I do think there's something about, I'm going to give you my, my theory, and I, it's only a theory, okay? But it's completely accurate. <laughs> okay? My theory is this. The best prayer is when you pray out loud. I think you put I think you reinforce in your mind what you're saying and I think you put the enemy you drive the enemy away from your 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 that dimension of prayer. You put a sphere of authority around you when you begin to pray. I also think the best prayer is the prayer that is not like as you go. I think it's when you set apart time, even if it's a little bit of time, and you pray. So, for example, if you just say, I'm going to just pray. I've only got five minutes because I'm so busy. Okay, great. Let's pray five minutes out loud, okay, and let's give 80% of that time. Let's give four minutes of that time in praise. Start with praise. You praise for four minutes, and you take one minute to tell him what you need because you set the tone. What do I do when I'm praising God out loud? Do you think there's any demonic spirit that's hanging around my house? And it says God inhabits the praise of his people. So what do I do? I drive darkness out and I invite the power of God into my life. The word Judah, right? Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. The Hebrew word yada, yada means the thrusting forth of the hand. It means literally praise. When I do this, I'm doing yada. I'm doing Judah. You know, some people say, "Well, you know, I don't know about that lifting hands when you sing and stuff like that." I'm really not into that. But see, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, that every every word had a meaning that took on some kind of a either a meaning or an act or a position. So the idea was, you know, I'm going to op- I'm going to honor God with clean hands. And I hold them up. I hold them both up and it's a sign of universal surrender, right? I give up God. Now I'm not suggesting you have to raise your hands to praise God. 
I'm just saying that the idea is we want to praise him. We want to be vocal. We want to get it out there. We want to, we want to store up. So uh, I made a note in the, on my picture. I didn't want to forget it because I liked the way he said it, that he had a prayer vault filled with times he'd spent with the Father so that heaven could erupt into the natural world at a moment's notice. That's pretty good, huh? Um, Book of Revelation says that um, our prayers are stored in golden vials. It says there are the, the prayers of the saints, these golden vials. Think about this. Every prayer you've ever prayed is on tap. Now, I don't know if you drink beer or not. Um, Benjamin Franklin said, uh, uh, beer is proof that God loves us. Okay, I don't really like beer, but, you know, I just have a beer quote in my head, so I had to give it out. I am a plethora of worthless trivia. You'll learn that. Okay, so anyway, think about it like you go into a, you go into a restaurant, and you go, what do you got on tap? Okay. And you want to know, okay, well, we got this and this is, okay, great. That means it's, it's, it's got a certain characteristic. It's available right now. It's not in a bottle, been sitting in a warehouse for two years. What if you look at it like this? I can put my prayers on tap. They're always available. It's ready to go. I can just pull the lever because I've, I've stored up prayer. God, I'm just praying, God, I... You, I mean, sometimes I pray, God, I don't, I don't know when I'm going to see the answer to this, but I want to store up prayers in heaven. I want to start, I want to start just laying that foundation as much as I can. You can do it for your future. You can do it for your children. You can do it for your job. You can do it for your children's children. Start praying for them, saying, God, I just want to store up. I want to start, I want to start in that vault of heaven. I want to lay that up. And, and, and in my own life, God, I just want to I want to be ready that, boy, when the opportunity comes, there is that, there's everything I need for that very, very moment. Those disciples in Matthew 17, which is the parallel to this, I think it's Matthew 17, 21, if I remember right, they came and they, the father came and he had the, the boy that was demon-possessed, the, the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus said this, how long will I be with you, O faithless generation? Bring the boy to me. He's almost like frustrated. Are you kidding me? You don't got this one yet? I'm getting ready to leave, guys. And you don't got this one down. And he says this, this kind of demon, is what he was saying, only comes out by prayer and fasting. So maybe what he was saying was, you guys haven't been fasting, have you? Or you guys haven't been praying enough. Or you haven't got the right combo yet. But you got to know, you got to get this down. You got you to store up some stuff in your life and be ready at any moment. Um, now let's go over to uh, Mark. Let's go to Mark chapter six, Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six. And let's look at, uh, beginning in verse one. It's in your book on page 127. If you want to go there. Okay. So either way, I'm just going to read from the book. It'll be easier. But if you want to, I want to tell you the passage so you can mark your Bible. Then he went out from there and he came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many having, um, 
hearing him were astonished saying where did this man get these things and what wisdom is this that is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands is this not the carpenter the son of mary the brother of james kind of a shock to catholics right <laughs> what wait, what what did you say okay the brother of james and of course these were half brothers james uh, joseph uh, judas and simon and not his sisters are here with us. So they were offended at him. Ha, huh. offended. Now, what else did you notice? It says here, he began to teach in the synagogue, but what, what did they say they were astonished by? Where did he get the things, but what else? So they were astonished by his teaching. Wisdom, go on. Mighty works. So they weren't just recognizing that he had wisdom when he taught, but they knew he had a reputation of doing mighty works. You see how important it is? You know, we don't want to ever get to the place where we live our life like this. God the Son, or God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. See, some people... The Bible is the inspired word of God. I love it. It gives me everything I need from God. But don't miss out on what the Holy Spirit's God's doing. He want, you got to get that word in order to understand the power of God. And you want to release the power of God in, in, in your world. You want people to see what God is up to. I saw a young man come in today into the, um, into the high school there. And uh, Anthony was there. And this kid had gone out for, high, uh, for football. And he had just moved here from Detroit. And I took a few minutes to talk to him. He's an African-American guy, just really nice kid, just a really, really super nice kid. And talking to him, and after he walked up, um, uh, Anthony said to me, he said, you know, that, that kid is really comes out of a bad situation in Detroit. They moved here because it was so bad, and his brother's going to be moving here too. And so when I'm speaking, I'm, I'm watching this kid, and he's listening, man. He's just all ears, just listening, 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 you know. And uh, when I gave an invitation, you know, his hand was the first hand to go up. I thought, that's the works of God. That's the work of God, the work of God. Somebody goes from hell to heaven, from death to life. Is that not the work of God? Wow. Would you rather see somebody healed physically who's saved or see somebody who's lost get saved? The Bible says heaven rejoices more in, the, in when one sinner comes to, to, to faith than he does when 99 other people what is God? He says, you know, we are here. You know, we're here to do the works of God. We're here to bring people into the kingdom of God. We're here to, like that old hymn said, we're rescue the perishing, care for the dying, right? I mean, it's just like we, we got to get people saved too. We, we, we can't get out of balance in any area. Okay, so they were offended. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and his own house. Can you imagine growing up in the house and Jesus is your brother? Hey, let's go swimming. I'll walk. <laughs> you want to go fishing? I'll take care of that. Hungry. I got it. I mean, you know, it's just kind of fun to think about it, isn't it? If you study medieval art, you'll notice that what they do is when they paint Jesus, they paint him with an adult head and an infant body because they never could conceive that Jesus could be little. I mean, Jesus had to be potty trained from birth. 
I mean, really, this is, this is the idea because they couldn't conceive of how God could become man. Well, that was the struggle they had here. Isn't this like Joseph's son, the carpenter? I, who are you? Have you ever noticed that the hardest people to witness to and to talk to about God are your own family? Oh, yeah, well, I know you. Yeah, oh, yeah, you're really holy. Ha, ha, ha. Right? Yeah, I saw you last Christmas. I know what's going on. Right? And have you ever noticed how lost people have an amazing memory at what you've done? They can't remember what they've done, but they know what you've done. Didn't you? You know, I think I heard you say something. Didn't you, like, use a cuss word or something? How could you use a cuss word? If uh, the Christians cuss, you know, better just to get it out and go, yeah, they do. We've heard them. But we'll get all that resolved one day. But, but we got to get the heart resolved. Um, so they were offended by him, right? And uh, now, now look what it says. Now, this is interesting. Now he could do no mighty work there. Okay, just underline that, okay? He could do no mighty work there. except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then it tells you why. It tells you why. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Okay, so Jesus couldn't do works in his own hometown because of why? They were offended. They were offended to think that, that this Jesus... Okay, if you live with a spirit of offense about what God, what you think God should have done, or what God, or why God's blessing somebody else and not you, any of those kind of things, you're not going to see the mighty works of God. You will not see them. He cannot. Maybe a few random kind of people kind of get something, you know, get healed, but you're not going to see God. What happens is, that's why when I I made this statement, I'm going to repeat it again. I cannot afford to entertain thoughts that diminish my faith. I can't. I can't risk that. I have to even be careful when people are asking legitimate questions that I don't let it sink down into me and I, and I get a spirit of, of negative thought about the faith and, and the miracles of God. I can't do it. Because remember, most of Christianity does not believe that God's doing miracles today. Most of them do not believe that. They're, you know, they're kind of practical, almost in a sense, atheists. I believe, I believe you have to, to know Jesus to go to heaven, but I don't really think God will let anybody go to hell. That's a practical atheist. There's really no God because God wouldn't do that. Would God really send people to hell? Have you ever heard that statement? Isn't that not questioning the goodness of God? How can a good God send people to hell? Okay, how can a bad God send people to heaven? One shift, and it changes the whole dialogue, doesn't it? There's really not a Satan. I've heard people say, there's really not a Satan. I said, okay, well, let me ask you a question. If there's light, there is therefore what? If there's truth, there's therefore what? It's a basic philosophical argument. 
Okay, it's called the law of AB contradiction. You can use this all the time, all day long. Okay, so if there is, if there is a God, there is therefore what? It's it's basic philosophical philosophical logic. If you learn a couple of things, you don't have to learn. You don't have to go buy a book on philosophy. In fact, I tell you, don't. Someone said philosophy is like um, a blind man trying to see a black cat in a dark room that doesn't exist. Does that metaphor work for you? But there's some arguments that are that are just really, really good. And when you begin to think about it, okay, people question the character of God, the goodness of God. But see, what happens when I start doing it? The real loss is not, I don't lose my salvation. The real loss is I lose power. So what we want to do is we want to create a culture. Okay, he uses the word environment. Go on over to page 128. Okay, top of the page. Um, when he started teaching in their synagogue, they said to one another, wow, where did he learn this stuff? This is amazing. They were impressed that he, and, and that created a, an environment in which Jesus could do miracles to illustrate the power of what he was teaching. But then they took stock of what was happening and said, wait a minute, we know this guy. He grew up here. Uh, we knew his dad, his mom, his sisters. How is he doing all these miracles? Their minds became offended at Jesus this is not the kind of offense where someone hurts you. This is an intellectual offense when you have an unanswered question that blocks your ability to trust in the unseen. Okay, so here's what I want to say. What we want to do and what you have a responsibility to do, because you, you, you know, you've, you've sat in those now very comfortable chairs. Aren't they better than the old ones? You've sat in these very comfortable chairs for about two hours, two and a half hours, you know, for six weeks straight, right? You know what you, know what you have a responsibility to do? You have a responsibility to help create an environment and a culture of heaven, of the Spirit of God. When you, when you get in a conversation and someone is just, you know, they're going down the wrong road and you feel your faith kind of getting hammered, you got a responsibility to say, wait a minute, i got to turn this because we have to, the more of the culture of faith we can create in this fellowship, the more of the miracles of God we're going to see in this fellowship. We, we are carriers of, you know, we're, we're, um, we're like um, cultural architects. We can't have a church environment. We have to have a spirit environment. We have to speak words of life. We have to speak words of faith. Let, let me give an example this way. Let's suppose I got up on Sunday and I said, hey, I just want to tell you, um, we had 18 kids saved at one of our Bible clubs this week. What will people do? They will clap. They will clap. Okay? Um, I get up and I say, hey, um, we just, uh, Ashley just got baptized and she was healed of, of, of a bladder failure. What will people do? Okay. Hey, I just want to report we had 18 people in a um, get over your depression class. What will people do? Oh, that's great. Good for them. Do they wear tags? I want to stay away from them. Right? We avoid that group. Where's they meet? Right? Most exciting place in a hospital is what? 
It's not billing. I mean, you know, let, let me face it. People are going to clap more when I tell you how many people are saved than I want to say, hey, I'm going to be doing a series on stewardship and try to give you more, get you to give more than you've ever given in your life. Nobody's clapping to that. <laughs> Billing's not exciting. Cancer's not, cancer ward's not exciting, right? Emergency room, please. That's not exciting. It's interesting. Interesting who shows up in there, especially you go down to Hogue Hospital, you know, late at night. I mean, I've done that. Where do these people come? They do not live in America. There's no way these people actually live in America, are they? Okay. So what do we want to do? If you start creating a culture where you're talking to people about Jesus, when you're, you're talking about the miracles of God, you're seeing what God is doing, guess what it does? It creates the culture. It makes it easy. What's the best kind of... What's the most effective kind of pressure? We say to our kids, it's what? Peer pressure. Your peers. you got peers that come to church. You sit down next to them and say, hey, how you doing? Great. Hey, what do you think about the football game? Eh, I don't know. You know, what's going on? Hey, weather's pretty good, huh? What, that, nothing wrong with that. you got to transition to a culture of the spirit, though. Hey, what do you, what, is God doing any miracles in your life right now? Yeah, no, not really. Do you need one? We kind of do. Can I pray for you right now? Do not pray. promise to pray for people. Pray for them then. When you promise to pray for them, what's the problem? Number one, you forget, right? Number two, you lose the moment. You can still pray for them, but don't promise. Say, hey, you know what? Would you pray for me? I will do that right now. Right this second, I'm praying for you. Jesus... <laughs> you're jumping into it what happens what how does that change the culture of the church people looking around they've seen four or five people with their hand on their shoulder praying for people they're going dang that looks kind of cool this place believes in prayer this is exciting i want to i want to pray i want somebody to pray for me or i want to pray for somebody you create the culture you make it an easy place for jesus to show up and do the miraculous it makes it different. It's not the church. Everybody goes in, sees the show, pays a dollar, and goes home. Boring. If that's church, I'm over it. Totally over it. I want to see God show up. So when you look at this story, it really illustrates this great point, doesn't it? Create an environment where it's easy for Jesus to work. First. Uh, so, uh, First new paragraph there, many times I hear people say things like this, I wish I could believe that God heals people today. But my grandmother died two weeks ago, and I prayed for her, and she didn't get healed. Or I wish I could believe that God loves me, but I went through a horrible divorce, and I know a good God wouldn't allow that kind of pain. Heartfit, uh, genuine grief separates people from God because they have questions but no answer. Questions are allowed in the kingdom, but lack of answers must not interrupt our heart communion with God. If we demand answers from God, then we are walking the spirit of offense. Hosea 6.3. So let's press on to know the Lord. Those words press on can be translated hunt. That's a picture of how we should passionately pursue the Lord. In spite of not fully understanding him or his ways, we are to run after him even in the time of potential offense. The answer is always on the other side of our offense. You're offended here? Get on the other side of it. 
How you doing? I'm under the weather. Well, get out from underneath it. Well, I'm really mad. Why? Why don't you, is it easier to be happy? I don't know if this is really true. My mother always used to say, you know, it takes, it takes uh, more muscles to frown than it does to smile. She used to say that, you know, well, so, so who cares? I'm not, what, I got, I'm trying to store up those muscles or something? I'm wanting to frown right now. It was a stupid, I think it's the stupidest answer in the world. Why not say, okay, well, let's just give that to God. Let's just start praising God for what's going on good in your life. Let's direct people into the kingdom of God. Kingdom directed. Kingdom directed. I promise you, what I'm telling you right now is going to be like the damming up of a water behind a, a dam. The water begins to get. And all of a sudden, you know, so, sooner or later, that water, gets, that water gets deep enough that you can turn on the hydroelectric plant and you can start powering a city. And that's what we're doing. We're damming up water. We're getting ready to power a city. We're getting ready to turn light on everything that's going around here. And you, every time you pray, every time you praise, every time you're doing it, you're getting ready to turn that big turbine on. And when that turbine, come, when that turbine comes on, it's going to be light. There's going to be a lot of light coming out of that. So who's a minister in this room? It's called School of Ministry. It's not called the School of Not in Ministry. Come to the School of Not Ministry and learn a bunch of cool stuff that you never have to do. Ever learning, never able to come to knowledge of the truth. That's what we, our goal, fill up your head, leave your heart alone. Why get the kingdom advanced when you don't have to? Okay? I'm done. I'm just done. I'm hungry. When a man gets hungry, he has to quit. Amen? Uh, by the way, so, uh, hey, thank you for being here. Uh, don't forget, if you haven't, uh, if you didn't check in with Carol, make sure you get that done. She'll send you an update. Go th- look at your spreadsheet. Make sure. Um, you know, I love it when I say I'm done and then just everybody just tunes me out and go, I'm, I'm not talking to you no more. I ain't listening to you no more. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm hungry too. Okay. And as you said, Brad, I'm starving. You know, he said, I'm starving. When's this thing over? Um, but anyway, um, Sign up for, if you haven't done already, hey, how many of you are coming to the Spirit School on the morning of the 27th, 9 to 12? How many of you? Okay. Why, why aren't the rest of you coming? It's 9 to, 12, 9 to 2. And lunch is included. It's $15. If you don't have the money, uh, we'll cover it. Okay. That a boy. Well, that's okay. You're providing the sandwiches. So anyway, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, and then that night, how many of you got, already got signed up? You're coming? You got, got a table? Whatever? Yeah, it's just, it's just a day that's out of your life. You just figure out, you start from 9, you just kind of wipe out the whole day till that night. It's going to be a really, really great time uh, with Retha. Um, I encourage you, I know some people have bought tables and are still looking for people to sit at them, okay? And, um, and so, or you might want to buy a table and then uh, fill that up. It's going to be a great time. If you know, here's, here's how you can use it for the kingdom. You know somebody who's struggling in their life? somebody who needs um, some healing, somebody that needs just the presence of God, use this as a tool. Invite them to set your table and say, what, and they say, what's about? We're going to have a nice meal, and you're going to hear an amazing story about a miracle of God. 
And what it might be, it might be the very tool that you need because you haven't been able to break through in their life or you haven't been able to know what to say to them. It might be the tool you need to help break into their life so you have a, a conversation about what God's up to, what God can do. So think about it both ways, okay? So um, anyway, um, I gave you a sheet that said core values. Um, if you have a chance to do it tonight, that's fine. If you don't, you can take it home and give it back to us. I'd really like you just to say, hey, on that list, the top five core values that I, I resonate with most are, and just put a circle. It'd be helpful if you put your name on it, but you don't have to. If you want to be anonymous, you can, but we'll know who you are. Yeah, we will. Yeah. 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 Odette. Oh, age appropriate, I think, would be any age, really. Yeah, she's going to talk about, you know, her son, you know, her five-year-old and her nine-year-old and that kind of stuff and going to talk about the miracle of what God did. Yeah. Whole family. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay? All right. Let's uh, let's close in prayer uh, before Valerie yawns again. It's Okay. Now I want to yawn. Anybody want to yawn? Let's just all, everybody on the count of three, ready? <sighs> thank you, God, for all that breath of oxygen we had. And thank you that nobody in here has Ebola that we know of. <laughs> Amen. Have a good week. God bless you.